Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to The Humane Podcast. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and you are listening to Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to the show. Listeners, welcome back to this episode of the Humane Podcast. I'm your host, David Jakobovich, and today we have two special guests from the Partnership on AI. We have both Katya Klinova and E. Cavello, who are involved with research and AI, labor, and the economy. And what we all know this year is everything AI, labor, and the economy has been nothing but normal. It's been a very unusual year, so it's going to be a Fantastic episode to hear about the research and work that they're both working on. Katya and B, thanks for joining us on the show. What a pleasure to be here. Thank you, David. Thank you. Well, as we're wrapping up 2020 very quickly, we're looking forward into 2021. And that means a lot of, you know, fresh breaths of air and what is the future of life and business and work. And I think one of the hot topics we've seen this year has been about AI and the future of work, whether it's uh, major organizations with funding, with technology, or with business ideas. There's so much going on. So love to hear from both of you. What are you seeing around this topic of artificial intelligence and the future of work? Let me start and then would love also to 
handed over to B. You know, when the year um, got rolling, and then, of course, the major event that happened in everyone's life was COVID, there was a moment in which I personally thought, okay, now people are going to stop worrying about AI and its impact on, on labor and labor market. But I was wrong. And pretty soon, people realized that COVID and the lockdown and the economic fallout that ensued really only exacerbated the trends that have already been in place and that AI and technological change have been contributing to in terms of the polarization of labor market, skill bias being introduced into the labor market. Because what we saw with the pandemic is that people with college degrees, people who have the opportunity to work remotely have been hit economically much less comparatively with people who are not able to work remotely. And that's disproportionately people who did not have access to higher education uh, and college degrees. So it's, again, the very same trends that were already being exacerbated by AI and technological change that now only got deeper with COVID. And to add to that, you know, there's just such an interesting dynamic whenever we talk about the future of anything, but especially the future of work, kind of thinking about whose work counts as the future of work, you know, maybe like the future of dentistry is very different from the future of, I don't know, web design or, or call centers or any other thing. So it's really interesting to see whose work kind of is considered in these conversations. And I think kind of backing up even before COVID, a lot of the future of work conversations centered around, you know, being able to be remote, being able to be distributed, which was very interesting because a lot of companies prior to the pandemic actually were kind of pushing back on that. I used to work at IBM, which was undergoing a major process of actually bringing people back into the workplace. So it's kind of something I think, you know, there's like the the pointy, skinny, high-heeled shoe and the thick wedge um, high-heel shoe. And we see these trends come and go. Perhaps this time around, the the kind of distributed work setup is going to be the new normal. But some of the things that I think really come out of those trends toward distribution are also more of this kind of on-demand work or gig work as it's sometimes framed in terms of seeing a lot more folks gravitating toward or, or seeking out um, work where they don't have necessarily kind of the traditional formal employment, but looking to, you know, drive in a, in a ride hailing service or do digital on demand work. And so I think that that's a trend that also has been exacerbated by the pandemic. We see a lot of formal sector jobs kind of falling away as a result of precautions taken to manage the the virus. But as a result of this, we also see a proliferation in oftentimes lower wage sort of on demand or gig work playing out. And there's a lot of exciting stuff to talk about in future of work too. I don't mean to just be a naysayer here. There's a lot of really exciting stuff happening around, you know, I'm really a, a big proponent of uh, all of these amazing digital communication technologies that we have, new ways of socializing and interacting with each other. I recognize um, folks in, in the disability activism community have been saying for a long time that we need more remote and distributed work options. And so in many ways, there are, there are many several silver linings to take from this kind of this trend that we're seeing playing out. But there are also a lot of highly disruptive technologies in the space of robotics and information technology, especially in the AI space, that 
you know, they could lead to possible exciting futures, but they could also lead to some uh, less ideal outcomes. And, and that's really something that the work that we're doing is really focused on is how can we think about the quality of work that people have as people trend toward these more distributed on-demand work options, while also thinking about the availability of work, especially in a pandemic where jobs are so front of mind for so many people. How do we think concretely about making sure that as technologists, as innovators, as people paving the way toward that future of work, we're thinking about um, you know, a work world that includes everyone? And a work world that includes everyone is all about, well, simulations. What is possible and what is probable? And when we think back through 2020 as the year that could be and the year that was, COVID was not predicted by the actuaries. COVID was not predicted by most of the AIs. But now that it has come and it is here, the models have been disrupted. They've change. There's new inputs, there's new drivers. And the new simulations say, well, there was a COVID-19, but could there be a COVID forever? And that's how do you work with quality and availability in this world? So many companies have gone digital first. And we've heard this from uh, leading big tech companies in Silicon Valley through you know the real estate leaders in New York City. Some companies have said, we're in-person first and post-COVID, we are in-person first. And others have said we're going all digital. Is this stark reality of having such a polarization of in-person versus digital, is this the right way to think about it? Or, you know, has society, it's just an election year, we just polarize everything and perhaps it's more what B and Katya you're hinting at. We're moving less necessarily towards just a remote only world, but a distributed or maybe a hybrid world. I think there is definitely more polarization and it's more acute than before. And it is probably here to stay. Both because COVID is, I don't think it's going to end overnight, in, 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 not even in terms of at the time horizon, but the, the transition back to the normalcy is probably going to be gradual. And that normalcy might be, even if it's not for healthcare concern reasons, but it might still look different than pre-COVID because some people might have found out that they're just as productive working from home and they save time commuting. So some or in some companies might have discovered that they're saving a lot of money on the office space. So they might choose, even if it's not because of healthcare considerations, they might choose to stay remote. And that might become more of a norm. So that is, in some sense, might be a positive, uh, might be seen positively, right? Because like it creates choice for people. But at the same time, if there is more expectation around the need to be connected, and to be online and to have the setup at your home, both in terms of you know, time, quietness, not having disruptions and you know, quality of your connection, quality of your equipment, to be able to access economic opportunities, that that deepens and exacerbates digital divide. And it becomes a more, has already become this COVID, but it might stay a more important thing for us to tackle. Because as half the world remains offline, they're essentially cut out of this access 
to jobs and you know what B was talking about in terms of availability of jobs and access to and the quality of jobs it's in some sense doesn't even matter what the quality is if people cannot even access the jobs that are increasingly are now online right there might be some really really great jobs i think you know in the early 2000s everyone was excited about the beanbag chairs and the provided lunch and all of these great things available to the kind of <laughs> the scooters that tech workers zoom around on but if those jobs are only available to people in very special circumstances who have reliable internet access who have the kind of home environment that is you know really conducive to doing that type of work we see a whole new level of um, disparity across the board. You know, the, the office, the workplace is in some ways a leveler in that everyone has access to the, the same coffee machine, the same conference room, the same equipment. But as more of our work is distributed, that might not be the case. And, you know, some might say, oh, well, that's fine. You know, like we're going to have automation taking place. We're going to have more distributed work patterns take place. And, what that'll mean is greater flexibility for workers. It'll mean people more in control of their environment. And hey, yeah, some jobs are going to get automated, but it's okay because it'll present a, a net good. You know, there's going to be higher productivity. There's going to be, you know, more kind of just like production as a result of automation. We can do things faster, cheaper, better. But what we're seeing is that some of those trends that we've seen in the past that looked like these kind of sure bets in terms of the ways that technology and innovation affect our economies actually might not hold in this situation. And, and Katya has really highlighted, I think, really well some of the ways in which those extrapolations, those ideas about what the future of work looks like and how that um, sense of a rising tide lifting all boats might not actually carry over into the world of AI and into the work that we're seeing take place, especially in light of the global pandemic. Now, in a world where the pandemic did not occur, if we were living in an alternate reality distortion field, perhaps we would have seen more of these net gains. And perhaps we still will see the net gains. We just don't know yet where technology is moving at its pace. I know in the late part of 2020, there's been talks that Moore's law is now displaced by a new law. Actually, this new law is based on the founder of NVIDIA. Uh, it's about that you can speed greater than a twice increase every year. It's in fact, AI has gone, you know, some would say more than 200 or 300 times acceleration in the last 10 years. And that's all you know, based off what we're seeing with companies like NVIDIA and ARM and, and other large chip makers that are using AI to expand technology. So there's definitely a net gain in compute, though the big question remains, you know, where does it go down the line? And if it's not leading to jobs, what is the future work getting wrong? What is it overlooking? Yeah. And you know, it's so interesting, the chip space in particular, like, the reality is, in some ways, Moore's law can't keep up with physics. You know, the size of transistors, the size of um, the kind of connections that are being made actually are running into physical limits. They use, you know, certain wavelengths of light to actually build these different pathways. And, and we're getting to the scale of, of nanometers where, you know, you can't build a kind of filter, if you will, that can refract light that precisely. So 
in some ways, it's not a surprise that we're running into the limits of Moore's law and coming up with other laws. But I think it's also the case that, you know, just as you mentioned, there is a really interesting trend around kind of how the incredible speed ups and, and capacity that we've seen in what technology can do doesn't necessarily translate into shared prosperity for everyone. And I do want to point out one thing, even in I'm probably guilty of this myself, but there's this habit that we have when we talk about technology where we say like technology will do this instead of saying like technologists will do that, right? Where we we anthropomorphize technology as though it is this thing that this unstoppable force that has a mind of its own and is on this path that I think sometimes downplays the role that those in the technology space can actually play in shaping where technology heads and what technology will do in the future. So I think that as we think that there is this trend that we're seeing, which is certainly happening, I also want to kind of shine a spotlight on the role that we human beings are playing in the process of facilitating the development of these technologies. And while we recognize that, you know, we're building incredibly fabulously capable machines, really continue to interrogate to what end and to whose benefit those are being built. Yeah, I... Couldn't agree more with that. Thank you, B. And I think, David, to your question of what is the future of work, debate gets wrong. I think it is way too obsessed with trying to predict what technology is going to do instead of asking, what do we want technology to do for us? And what do we want technologists to do for the economy, for the labor market, for people in the labor market who are now pretty much expected to be left behind? in this technological progression. And so while, yes, completely, you're absolutely right that we've seen incredible gains in compute, but we haven't seen them being translated into productivity growth at all. So we have not seen AI in the in the economic numbers yet. And so the question is, what kind of AI do we want to see productivity growth and to see productivity growth being shared across the economy and not only be concentrated among a handful of companies and really a tiny sliver of uh, population that has certain kinds of advanced degrees and are able to benefit from this economy that is being created in front of us. So taking a more active stance in the future of work debate and being more deliberate about choosing the direction of technological change when it comes to AI and other technologies as well is, I think, what is missing. We have to be active, right? And you both said it perfect that often we take the side seat and you wait to see technology change and then you get left behind. I get left behind. We get left behind. And I think that's what, as a society, we've seen throughout covid not just in America, but this is a global pandemic that education needs to change very quickly so that people can catch up and be part of the next wave of technology and the next wave of jobs. Our listeners of the show will know that I've scaled trainings for General Assembly and Galvanize and now for a single store in the the database industry. And what we see with all people, whether we are students in K through 12 or adult learners, is everyone can learn. Everyone wants to learn. Everyone's willing to learn. 
though, is everyone given the chance, that equal chance to learn. And I think that's one of the areas that have not been solved from an economy perspective, especially in the pandemic, because schools went online very quickly. There were not all the resources for teachers to change and provide this remote-based learning. And we've seen additional students, especially in K-12, fall behind when many of these students are the ones who could be learning AI today to be our next leaders, to work with different chips and to transform the new industries that don't even exist yet. So the question I'll ask is, how can we be more active? You know, what can we tell listeners here of the show to take a stance on the future of work? That's an excellent question. I'll quickly comment on the educational outcomes and the importance of that. Again, couldn't agree more with the need to provide an equal chance to access education. It definitely is not active. It wasn't equal before COVID. It is even more unequal right now. But I also want to caution, and this is to the point of where we would like listeners to take a stance, I want to caution against using this upskilling call to action or mantra as a cop-out for not thinking and as an excuse for not thinking about the kind of burden and the kind of costs that technological change inflicts on society and on the workers and on the very people who might have very limited opportunity to access retraining, either because of time, money, or anything. And again, you know, when we're talking about online education, not everyone is online around the world. And the quality of online education, as you said, schools quickly went online. The results of that, the impact, potentially negative impact on the quality of educational outcomes is unknown. This might be lifelong earnings lost for the kids who've missed, um, you know, by now two quarters of school, right, or more. So we need to be realistic about our ability to quickly enough upskill everyone globally to keep pace uh, with the technological advancement and think about how do we lower the barrier to entry, lower the barrier that's needed in terms of skill requirements for people to be able to use these technologies to their economic advantage and extract um, economic value from that and be able to use it for, for their earning opportunities. So in terms of stance, I would really love for society to expect that, to expect that that technologies are created by design to meet the society and its people where they are in terms of their skills and be creating gainful job opportunities and earning opportunities for the workforce that we have today and not the workforce that we wish we had in some ideal world. And this is paraphrasing Ricardo Hausman quote here. Yeah, I, I think that, you know, it's it's sort of funny. It's turning a lot of assumptions on its head here where, you know, when we think about the automation of the past, when we think about the Industrial Revolution, what we saw was skilled craftspeople, people who took years to, you know, really hone their trade. And we took those skills craft people as, as an economy and we chopped them up into lots of little pieces and we turned them into assembly lines where you didn't have to apprentice and spend years learning how to be a furniture maker. Suddenly you could walk in off the street one day and be handed a screwdriver and you just do your one little bit of that system. 
right? And we took something that it required a lot of skill and we actually turned it into something that was much, you know, required less. And I, I don't mean to say that that's, you know, uh, was a, a costless endeavor, but it transformed the playing field in terms of who could enter the workforce in a different way. And what we're seeing with AI is instead of, for the most part, taking really complex, high-skilled things and breaking them down into little parts that anybody off the street could do. Instead, what we're seeing is that all of those assembly line jobs that we chopped up previously are now being automated away. So the people who previously could walk in off the street to do a job suddenly are being encountered with jobs that require you to have had many years of experience. And, and you know, I'm curious about this. I genuinely don't. This is my gap in understanding, but I'm genuinely curious to what extent certain jobs that are considered as low skilled or high skilled, which we recognize as the flawed language of economics, where we're really what we're referring to is like educational attainment and how much kind of pre-training someone has. But there are incredibly high skilled jobs. I, I follow the Twitter account of um, you know a union that represents a lot of farm workers and they show these videos of people, you know, picking strawberries, just incredible rates, things that people do that frankly requires so much skill to do well. But part of why those jobs are considered low skill in my mind is because you're not actually expected to have mastered it before you walk up to the job. Whereas when we expect someone to become an AI engineer or something like that, we're expecting someone to have already done that training. There's even uh, this huge problem in the industry of all of these junior developers who have trouble getting jobs because every you know, you'll see, oh, you must have done React for 15 years. Well, I was like, well, that's impossible. Like, this doesn't make any sense at all. And so we see these ridiculously high expectations for people entering the job market. So while, you know, this is within the kind of context of the US where we have, you know, relatively high educational attainment. And, you know, I'm a huge believer of continuing education and access to education for everyone. But I also recognize the degree to which we're somewhat shifting the burden on society rather than us learning in our jobs and training people on the job. There's this increased expectation that, well, you should have learned all this stuff before you started. And anyone who doesn't already have those skills, it's on you to figure out, it's on you to finance, it's on you to figure out how you're going to upskill yourself. And I think that that's a real difference in the kind of pattern that we're seeing from the past where we chopped up these high-skilled things into something that someone could walk in off the street and start doing to the trend that we're seeing now where we're automating those jobs, but we're increasingly creating new opportunities in a space where we expect you to have a wealth of experience and technology. Now, I would I would love for everyone to be super technologically literate, just because I think that, you know, especially in a democratic country, you would hope that to have an informed citizenry, you're going to need people to understand these things that are increasingly shaping our entire, our global context. However, at the same time, I also want to be real about where folks are coming from and what kind of burden is being placed on their shoulders. I, I, you know, benefited so much from my educational experience, but I didn't have to juggle the amount of things that so many people, especially now during the pandemic, are juggling. And so when I think about where the future is headed, I think, well, how could a technologist today think to themselves, what's that skilled craftsperson mentality? What's that furniture maker? What's that Thing that right now today does require someone to to kind of know a lot and instead break that down into easier to access pieces. And I think we see a proliferation of no-code apps. We see a proliferation of tooling that I think hopefully trends in that direction. But that's starting from already an incredibly advanced baseline when you have to remember that 
you know, we sit in such a privileged position that we just presume literacy, for instance, like the assumption is like, oh, you're going to be able to use a no code app because you can read. And I was having a conversation with someone just this week about how, how you design mobile interfaces for people for whom their first device is a smartphone. That's the first time they've ever accessed any sort of IT. And, you know, all of these presumptions we have, like an underlined word means that it's a link like all these things that you just assume people are going to automatically know, like that's actually not true for a lot of folks. So when we're thinking about what does it mean to say someone can walk in off the street or, or start wherever they are and, and get access to this new economy, this new um, proliferation of things that we're talking about, you really have to examine, well, what, <laughs> what, am I, what am I kind of assuming from my cultural context and what are the things that are actually available to folks wherever they are? Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. And this burden about access and who takes it on, whether it's society, the government, or private-public partnership, we've started to see that evolve the last few years. Uh, when I worked for Galvanize, we worked with the New York City Economic Development Corporation, NYCEDC, where we actually take New Yorkers off the street who work in, we'll call it, low-skilled jobs, making less than 40000 American dollars a year and put them through a data analyst boot camp to then come out making, you know, at least 60 or 70,000 a year. That's considered the upskilling from a retail worker to a data analyst. And that success in New York City translated to San Francisco with the Office of Economic and Workforce Development, where we're also running that same program. And it's not just Galvanize, it's General Assembly, who I used to work for. And and even the manufacturing companies in New York City, um, I've had the chance to talk a lot about labor, some of these topics that we're talking about here. I'd love to invite you to New York in a post-COVID world because um, I sit on the Manufacturing and Industrial Innovation Council, and we're talking every month about jobs using CAD machines and drilling and saws and mechanical jobs that are vocational as if building the furniture that you shared with before be yeah that's still relevant today and these jobs don't pay forty thousand dollars they can actually pay close to six figures and be unionized and have benefits from society for each worker yeah it's so true there's so many like that's that coming back to that question of like whose jobs are considered the future there are so many industries that are adapting with technology in so many really interesting and exciting ways. And I think that's what we want to encourage is there's a world in which people who are doing a job 
can actually make decisions about what kinds of technologies might support them in doing that work. Like most of us who've done work know some things about our work that could be a little bit better. (laughs) And many people actually recognize that the folks who are doing the job, the folks who are working in a factory, you know, making the furniture, so to speak, they have a real experience and perspective that spotlights that expertise in terms of how they could actually improve their working conditions and improve the output, the efficiency and the quality of their work. But so often the benchmark that we hold our technology against is not, you know, these questions of what would make a worker's job easier or their output better, but rather this question of, is it going to be able to perform at the level of a human? Can we make a technology that will make a person, you know, that will that will be able to do whatever a person could do? And there's this sort of fetishization in the AI sphere. And, you know, it comes from a really beautiful, fascinating space. I love, you know, the sci-fi nerd in me does really wonder like, oh man, what would it be like to create other ways of thought? What would it be like to, you know, to, to develop these thinking machines? But at the same time, there's this kind of distraction that comes from that when we're so excited about building a technology that can do what a person can do instead of like lifting up the person who can do the thing already. Like if you want to, I sometimes joke that like, (laughs) if you want to make a bunch of general intelligences, like we we, human beings have been doing that for millennia. We've, we've really gotten that one down. (laughs) Like it's probably going to be a baby boom following this pandemic. We'll see. And you know, there might be a lot more general intelligences entering the world. So this idea that the thing that we should be striving for is human level performance is sort of an interesting kind of philosophy that I think sometimes prevents us from building really exciting technologies that aren't about doing something that a human can do, but instead thinking about what what are the problems that humans have that we really wish we could solve and how can a technology help us solve them? Yeah, exactly. We have we have something like eight billion humans. Those humans now more than ever are in need of gainful jobs. And if we think of technological progress as the type of technological change that helps the society prosper and overcome its economic condition, the last thing that we need to do is to be building machines that do what humans can already do better than them and create competition for those humans. That's not the right moment in history to be doing that, but it is the right moment in history to be creating technology that doesn't come with skill bias attached, doesn't come with extra, you know, too burdensome educational upskilling requirements attached to it, but allows people to, to have their productivity boosted and be more valued in the labor market. So we need technological helpers, not technological displacers. And to get to there, we have to make sure that every person is cared for or taken care of by society. And one thing that we've all experienced globally as a result of COVID is a displacement of income and resources. In the previous election, we know one of the leading candidates coming up was Andrew Yang, and he was the big proponent for universal basic income, saying, we got to do this. We can start in New York. We could take it everywhere. And as if there was a prophecy, COVID happened, and then 
Nancy Pelosi and our commander in chief said, oh, we're going to give out universal basic income, although temporarily, to 25 million Americans. We'll call it the Pandemic Unemployment Payment Program. We'll give out $600 a week for a few months. And that program came and gone. And what did you both see being, you know, leaders in the labor and economy markets? How did that work out and as a UBI experiment? So I think obviously this is still going to be analyzed more and longer term effects are going to be analyzed. But I think it's pretty obvious that some of the UBI scares that people are just going to spend it all on alcohol and entertainment and hurt themselves with this extra money. They're just resoundingly were proven wrong. And this money was meaningful to people. And I'm very, while I'm very, very pro UBI, and I think expanding social safety nets is very important in all societies. I also do want us to not think about UBI as just this one universal answer to... uh, The silver bullet. (laughs) Exactly, the silver bullet and the panacea when we are thinking about how do we lead the society through the period of economic transition without generating pain for most of it. Because UBI is just not going to be enough to address that. And UBI, despite its name, has never been really considered as a universal program, meaning it is not spanning the globe, but it's not crossing the borders, but technology does. Whether we want it or not, but once the technology is developed in one country that might uh, be experiencing certain economic conditions and certain you know, economic incentives around automation, then suddenly it spills over around the globe and you fly into the Delhi airport and you see self-checking kiosks there, even though there is a billion people who who all need jobs, gainful jobs in the formal sector that are being eliminated by that technology. So thinking about technology being global, but UBI not being global, I think is a very important factor to consider when we measure up the viability of UBI to really address all of the concerns that are being brought about by the disruptions that can accompany technological deployment. And with where we've seen UBI today going through its iterations, and with the thoughts about how do we create shared prosperity, it's clear that we're not there yet, but there could be frameworks to get us there. This is important to talk about today because throughout COVID, it's been well publicized that some of the leading billionaires in the United States have made many, many times that over during the pandemic, but the 98% or 99% of the rest of us have either gone flat or down, which has resulted in what's known as this K-shaped recovery. But does it have to be that way forever? Perhaps there's new frameworks. And I know uh, Katya and B, you're both working on a framework at the Partnership on AI about shared prosperity. We do indeed, and we encourage our listeners to check it out. You can read more at the partnershiponai.org slash shared hyphen prosperity. It is a project that thinks about, A, the redistributive power of AI. So as David, as you just said, technology has this power to redistribute wealth and income and economic power And uh, if the trends that we're seeing are going to continue, 
then we might we have a risk of ending up in a world where this economic power is concentrated in really a handful of companies, countries, and even individuals. So the AI and Shared Prosperity Initiative really thinks about what is the responsibility in the hands of innovators themselves, of AI, of the AI industry, to think about these redistributive outcomes that they're bringing about for the society and to actively steering AI in such a way that these redistributive outcomes are actually empowering for the population at large and are not concentrating the gains in an increasingly small number of hands or um, just um, doling that out to AI developers, which are really like under 1% of uh, the global population today. And we are thinking about this from a practical perspective using the parallel with the environmentally responsible business movement. So if you think of that movement as of today, it is very clear when the society asks of business to be environmentally responsible, what we actually mean by that in practice. So it is clear what kind of goal you as a business can set for yourself. This is something around emission reduction or zero emissions, uh, how you measure your emissions, and what are some of the -the off-the-shelf policies around energy management and waste management that you can apply to make progress towards the goal like that. Now, if a society wants a company to be responsible when it comes to its impact on inequality and economic inclusion and uh, redistribution of economic opportunity, what's the right goal to set there? It's pretty unclear, right? Like, and how would you measure that you are making progress towards that goal? What are the some of the off-the-shelf solutions and policies that we can offer you as, a, as an AI company that actively doesn't want to exacerbate inequality, but actually wants to be making people better off economically. All of that is quite vague right now, but it doesn't have to stay that way. And this is what we're working on. The, the initiative, we're really very, very grateful for the involvement of our partners. This is not just BI who's working on that. We, we are benefiting tremendously from the thought leadership and the engagement of um, leading thinkers from across different disciplines. That's not only economics and technology industry. There's also, we have um, leaders from the labor movement and labor organizers uh, who work with workers directly, ethicists, ethnographers, social scientists. And this is a really diverse group that is on the steering committee of the initiative, but we're also actively looking for input and suggestions from anyone really interested. So you can subscribe on our website and be in touch with us, be receiving updates on the initiative and be invited to our events and to provide input on, on the early work. This is really early days and any ideas our listeners might have for us would be really well received and, and really, really helpful. Definitely. You know, it's Sometimes folks working in this space have a attitude that, you know, is a little bit like the Luddites who, you know, unfortunately in history have um, been mischaracterized as, I think, you know, kind of senselessly trying to destroy technology that threatened them. But in reality, I think there are a lot of really valid concerns that, um, <laughs> that both the Luddites of the past and people who are skeptical of AI and automation today do have. But I'm not one of those people, I'll just be honest. I'm really excited about technology. I work in the AI space because I think that it can be a thing that does bring about incredible opportunity and prosperity and 
you know, new horizons of understanding and collaboration, you know, that we haven't even seen before. And that's really, really exciting to me. So I, I think I want to just clarify that this stance is not one that says, you know, we shouldn't have AI, we shouldn't go down this road, we shouldn't build these technologies, but rather that this technology isn't moving on its own. It's moving because our hands are doing the work, at least for the time being, right? Who knows? Maybe there'll be some some future uh, Skynet style AI that can that can build and improve itself, but we're not there right now. And so we actually have the power to decide what do we want our technologies to do and what do we want that future world to look like? And that to me is such an exciting moment. It's such a cool time to be an innovator, to be in the technology space. And I think that folks who are listening to this are often, you know, you're the people who are most situated to do this work, to think critically about what that future world looks like. And so the work that we're doing at the partnership in AI and, and with this, you know, as Katya mentioned, this broad reaching um, set of collaborators that we're so fortunate to work with, we're really trying to ask the question, how can we do this well? How can we do this right? How can we act responsibly to think about how we can create that future together? And we are really interested in hearing from other folks who have been thinking about these topics or who are eager to get engaged on these topics. Katya mentioned our website, partnershiponai.org slash shared hyphen prosperity. And that's a space where we're sharing some of the thoughts from the leading thinkers in the form of these impulse talks, these questions posed to the world by some of these leading thinkers. And if you have responses to those ideas, or if you have ideas of your own to share, we'd really love to hear because the work that we're doing is in the very early stages, and there's so much possibility ahead of us and so many exciting things yet to do. So we really look forward to collaborating with folks to make this world a reality. And these collaborations are best put as putting the eye back into AI, just like we talk about on the show of humane, right? Humans and AI together. I hear a lot of that common thread in the excitement that Katya and BU both bring to this conversation that shared prosperity is possible. And when I think back to how my father and my grandfather worked in the industry. There were days when it was common to be part of unions. It was normal to have pensions. It was a standard practice to share in the equity and the wealth of the companies and the society that everyone builds. And perhaps some of where the world's gone has been on a different direction. And now we're having this new awakening to say, look, we got this fantastic technology. And if we can use AI for good, if we can partner it with the labor and the economy, then that's moving us towards an enriched world. And that enriched world can be with humans as the input, not only data as the input. Couldn't agree more. I I love that framing. And I love this idea too, that, you know, we at the end of the day, all of these systems, that, oh, there's a lot of talk in conversations about structural issues and structural change. Um, at the end of the day, these structures are built by us, us people, the humans in the AI loop, and we have the power to shift it. And we also have the power to do things that we couldn't do before. Um, there's conversations around thinking of data as labor, conversations around you know different ways of kind of having joint ownership of technologies. There's all these exciting things that are yet to come. And those are the kinds of ideas that we hope people will continue to explore 
as we make this kind of future, maybe maybe course correction, perhaps, that we make this intentional choice about the world that we want to build. Well, uh, Katya and B, any other call to action you'd like to share with our humane listeners today on the show? I just wanted to say, if you want to reach out to us as individuals, we both are on Twitter. We'll share our uh, Twitter handles in the description as well. We hope that you'll join us in the AI and Shared Prosperity Initiative work. And also, you know, if you're someone who's thinking about different ways that these kind of data inputs factor into our AI systems, the labor that goes on behind the scenes to generate and label data sets. There are so many ways we've been talking about the downstream sort of impacts of AI, but there are so many upstream impacts um, in intersections of labor and economy as well. So we haven't touched on that too much today, but if that's an area that you're interested in or working in, we'd love to hear from you and really build toward, you know, bringing these two ends together, the inputs into the AI systems and the outputs, the downstream effects of the AI systems to build a full closed loop, thinking about the different ways in which AI impacts labor and economy. And I would love to share a fun and interesting fact as a, as a parting fact. One of our steering committee members, Dunstan Allison Hope, reminded us that sharing in the fruits of scientific progress is actually a human right. So, dear listeners, please remember you have that right. Unalienable. How do you say that? Unalienable. Exactly. Thank you. And uh, expect it. We are all entitled to it. And this is really no innovation just gets invented on its own or appears on its own only thanks to the effort of the immediate team. But it always stands on the shoulder of all the scientific advances that uh, you know, society as a whole achieved before that. And frequently, all of that research was funded through taxpayer money. So people do have a right to say, a right to have a say in which way technology goes and what direction it takes. And they do have a right to be sharing in the fruits of it as well. Well, Katya MB from the Partnership on AI, thank you for joining us on the Humane Podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. What do you think? Did the show measure up to your thoughts on artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education? Listeners, I want to hear from you so that I can offer you the most relevant, trend-setting, and educational content on the market. You can reach me directly by email at david at humanepodcast.com. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcasting app and tune in to more episodes of Humane. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.